1 Kings 18. After a long time, in the third year, the word of the Lord came to Elijah. Go, present yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the land. So Elijah went to present himself to Ahab. Now the famine was severe in Samaria, and Ahab had summoned Obadiah, his palace administrator. Obadiah was a devout believer in the Lord. While Jezebel was killing off the Lord's prophets, Obadiah had taken a hundred and hidden them in two caves, 50 in each, and had supplied them with food and water. Ahab said to Obadiah, go through the land to all the springs and valleys. Maybe we can find some grass to keep the horses and mules alive, so we will not have to kill any of our animals. So they divided the land. They went to cover, Ahab going in one direction and Obadiah in another. As Obadiah was walking along, Elijah met him. Obadiah recognized him, bowed to the ground and said, is it really you, my Lord Elijah? Yes, he replied. Go tell your master, Elijah is here. What have I done wrong, asked Obadiah, that you are handling your servant over to Ahab to be put to death? As surely as the Lord your God lives, there's not a nation or kingdom where my master has not sent someone to look for you. And whenever a nation or kingdom claimed you were not there, he made them swear they couldn't find you. But now you're telling me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. I don't know where the spirit of the Lord may carry you when I leave you. If I go and tell Ahab and he doesn't find you, he'll kill me. Yet I, your servant, have worshipped the Lord since my youth. Haven't you heard, my Lord, what I did while Jezebel was killing the prophets of the Lord? I hid a hundred of the Lord's prophets in two caves, fifty in each, and supplied them with food and water. And now you're telling me to go to my master and say, Elijah is here. He will kill me. Elijah said, As the Lord Almighty lives, whom I serve, I will surely present myself to Ahab today. So Abadiah went to meet Ahab and told him, and Ahab went to meet Elijah. When he saw Elijah, he said to him, Is that you, you troubler of Israel? I've not made trouble for Israel, Elijah replied, but you and your father's family have. You've abandoned the Lord's commands and have followed the Baals. Now summon the people from all over Israel to meet me on Mount Carmel and bring the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent word throughout all Israel and assembled the prophets on Mount Carmel. Elijah went before the people and said, how long will you waver between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, follow him. But the people said nothing.
Thank you, Hesse, uh, for reading the first half. You'll be back for the second half in a few minutes. When I was a young teenager, I used to um, listen to a rock show on the radio, and I'd often come down from my room after that, and I'd find my parents watching Come Dancing. I think it was a Wednesday night. And a suggestion would come from them, wouldn't it be good if you learnt to ballroom dance? Now, I was listening to heavy rock at this point, and there was nothing further away from ballroom dancing. Then in my late teens, um, I went to university, and Freshers' Week, there was a, a ballroom dancing society. And I was a bit suspicious of it, but it was incredibly popular amongst the other students, and I asked why. And they said, well, it's a great way to meet members of the opposite sex. I had a girlfriend, so I didn't need to meet members of the opposite sex. I was fine. Fast forward to the 21st century. Where will you find me most Saturday nights in the autumn? Watching Strictly. <laughs> it has changed. Ballroom dancing. Dancing has changed. The music's brilliant. The musicians on the show are brilliant. The singers are brilliant. And sometimes the professional dancer and their partners are brilliant as well. Okay, not always though, and I'm just going to fast forward, this is where this guy comes in, he is so brutal but true, Craig Revelhorwood, he will say if it's not been a good dance, he will tell the people often that they are limping along, I think he used the word plodding last night of one set, he said you're plodding along, you're limping along. You're not getting it right. And this morning we're going to be looking at Israel, who are also limping along. They're not getting it right. They need to change. Just as Craig Revel Horwood will say, you, you're limping, you need to do things differently. The people of God, the people of Israel are going to be told the same thing. And there's going to be a great contest to show why they are limping and why they need to change. So let's pray before we look at the passage. Heavenly Father, we bow in your presence. May your word be our rule, your spirit our teacher, and your greater glory our supreme concern. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. All right, let's move on from Craig. Story so far, Bart introduced this series and it will continue next week. But last week we saw the people of Israel were being unfaithful to the Lord God by also following a Baal or Baals. We're not sure if there's just one or there are many, but they were following a false God as well as God, the Lord God. And why were they doing this? They were doing this because there was this power couple who were influencing people's behavior. They were changing behaviors. They were making foreign gods trendy, Ahab and Jezebel. And the Lord raised up Elijah, and Elijah went to Ahab and said, there will be no more rain until I say so. Because you have, in effect, you've disobeyed the covenant. In Deuteronomy, in 11 and 28, the Lord had said, if you fail to follow me, if you're unfaithful to me, I will withhold the rain. So Elijah is reminding him of that covenant curse or promise, and they've broken the covenant, and they were going to get the promised punishment of no rain. And this is also 
a direct challenge to Baal because the Baal they're following is responsible for storms and clouds and rain and lightning. So Elijah is saying, if Baal is a god, he'll fix it. If he isn't, then you've got problems. You've been following two gods and you're limping along and this isn't the way you should live. So Elijah says God will withhold the rain and God then withholds his word. He takes Elijah away from the people and he hides um, eventually with the widow and the word of God is hidden as well as the rain is hidden from the people. And the Lord, last week we saw how the Lord provided for Elijah while he remained hidden. So that's the backstory, and now we're going to look at the first half of chapter 18. And Elijah's like a, an agent, a sleeper agent. He goes, he disappears, he hides for three years, and then God reactivates him. In verses 1 and 2 of chapter 18, the, the word comes to Elijah that he's to go and tell Ahab that uh, he needs to change and that the Lord is going to bring back rain. Now, when I first heard this story as a young person in youth group, we always went straight to the contest. We skipped the sort of pre-match, the build-up. I'd like to stay a while and look at um, the first part of this chapter and not go straight to the contest, if you'll bear with me. And I want to see the characters we're introduced to in this chapter, how are they dancing? In Strictly, if you've ever seen it, there's a professional dancer and they tutor a, um, a celebrity. They're expected to follow the lead of the celebrity, follow their instructions. These people are wise, they've got experience, expertise, trust what they say, put the time in, do as they say, and keep in step with them. And it should go well on Saturday night. Now, can you imagine if a dancer said, well, I've got this professional dancer, but I've got another dancer I'd quite like to use. I'll come and see you for the first few days of the week and I'll see the other dancer for the rest of the week. And then we'll put it all together and see what happens on Saturday night. That isn't really going to work, is it? That's not going to be a great recipe for success. But this is what appears to be happening with the people of Israel. They're saying, we'll have God, the Lord God, we'll also have Baal, and let's see how it goes. So let's look at uh, how it's going. How is Ahab dancing? How is Obadiah doing? How are the people of Israel doing? Now, I, I love names because names often tell you so much in the Bible. And I have to admit, I'm disappointed with Ahab. His name means father's brother. Uncle? It's not very impressive, is it? Uncle. I don't think Ahab is very avuncular either. So I think there's a misnaming here. Ahab, Ahab we know from um, 1 Kings earlier in the book, 1 Kings 16, he did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than his um, predecessors. He's married Jezebel, who's a Sidonian, a worshipper of Baal, and he too is worshipping Baal and building temples. So he's certainly being pulled towards Baal, but interestingly, his sons have sort of names that honour the Lord God. One of them, his name means owned by Jehovah, the other one means Jehovah is exalted. So he hasn't totally ignored uh, the Lord God, but he's obviously following Baal as well. He's keeping some, some of the, the um, biblical principles, but he's not keeping that many. He's sort of limping along. And 
the Lord has sent Elijah. Elijah's name means the Lord is God. Elijah is a walking sort of message. He's a, a living, breathing confession of faith. And he is irritating Ahab because he's reminding Ahab that he should be following the Lord and not mixing it up with Baal. And what I find interesting is um, when Ahab and Elijah meet, Elijah is not arrested, he's not killed, but instead Ahab listens to him and follows his instructions. So there is obviously, he's not totally rejected the Lord God, but he's, he's not following the Lord God properly either. So he is mixed up. Let's look at Obadiah. Now his name is a bit more inspiring. It means a servant of God. And he is living out that. He's showing a life of commitment. And interestingly, he's like a lot of Old Testament, in a lot of Old Testament crises, the Lord puts someone in the top of the, the organization. Think about people like Joseph in Genesis. I think of Daniel and so on. I think of Esther. The Lord puts people in top positions in a time of crisis to use them, to use those individuals to do his will. And Obadiah is a, a man who's in the persecuted church. He's quietly seeking to honor the Lord and do the Lord's will. And he's been putting his life at risk. And now, having protected some prophets, this prophet, he feels, is going to harm me. Because if he doesn't show, if there's a prophet no-show, I'm going to suffer death as a result. And because of that reaction, I think a lot of people sort of ignore ignore Obadiah and what he can teach us. They all think about Elijah. He's, a, he's one of the bigger names in the Old Testament. Elijah is up there with Moses almost. And we tend to forget Obadiah. But he is he's a man of God who is trying to be honouring to God in a very difficult situation. If you've ever met someone from a persecuted church, you suddenly realise that things that you take for granted, the simplest tasks, are so terrifying in their potential consequences. And I think sometimes we... We forget that here. A time may come when we become persecuted and we'll realize how the simplest task as a Christian can expose us to incredible danger. So I have to say, Obadiah has a lot to teach us and he is often forgotten because we're focusing on Elijah. Each of us has a work to do and we may not have a great work, but we have good works that we should be doing. And Obadiah is doing a good work. And then we meet the people of Israel. They are hedging their bets. Have you ever hedged your bets? Yeah? They're saying, well, we'll keep God, but we'll have a go. We'll try and get a, a Baal as well and see if we can get the best results by mixing things up. And, uh, and Elijah says something quite astonishing to them when they assemble at Mount Carmel. You spot the difference? If you've got your NRV open, what's the difference? What's, there's a word changed. What's your word? Waver. waver. It's waver, isn't it? Which is a really good word, but the ESV goes for limping, which is probably closer to the original. They are limping along. If you're limping, you're not walking properly. You're making a real mess of things. You're not dancing particularly well. You are limping. The people of God are limping along because they're not worshipping God and God alone, the one true God. They're worshipping other gods. And 
Isaiah is, not Isaiah, Elijah, sorry, mixing my prophets up. Elijah is saying, if the Lord is God, you should be following him. If Baal is God, you should follow him. You should confess who the Lord or who your God is and you should act on it. You shouldn't just say it, you should act on it. And if you're waiting for that Joshua moment, as for me and my house, I will serve the Lord, response, you're not going to get it. You get tumbleweed moment. You ever had a tumbleweed moment? I, as a teacher, frequently had those. You get the class, you think you got the class where you wanted them, and they're going to tell you what you hoped they'd learnt. Tumbleweed. Tumbleweed moment. Okay. Now, we're 21st century Christians. We're sophisticated, aren't we? I love the uh, writings of Dale Ralph Davis, really good writer on the Old Testament. I've, I've pushed his books before. He's written a really good book on kings, and he says about this passage, Christians are apt to feel detached from this text. After all, we don't worship idols, things made of wood, stone, metal. Um, we don't build temples to idols. But we do, as the great writer John Calvin said, we do in our minds have a perpetual forger of idols. We make idols in our minds. We make them. We may not give them names like Baal, but there's a danger. There are things that we, instead of the Lord God, become our primary focus, our primary source of security, fulfillment, and identity. God's still there. As Christians, we say, well, you're there, God, but somehow I'm being, I'm centering myself on what fulfills me, what gives me security, what gives me identity. And it may not be totally you. God is in the background. Now, I was thinking about this, and security can often become a small g God because we want security. And the cost of living crisis has made us think about money in a new way. We are, we are all worried about money, but it's, and it's so easy for it to become, you know, we've got money, I feel secure. But is that where our security should be? It's easy to understand how we can fall into turning that into a small God, but we should be careful about where our security lies. <clears throat> when it comes to fulfillment, it could be your home and or your family. I was listening to Desert Island Discs. I'm telling you all my listening and viewing pleasure, aren't I? I was listening to Desert Island Discs on Friday, and it was a, my favorite, one of my favorite comedians, a guy called Aid Edmondson. And you have, to, you have to choose your discs that you want to take with you to Desert Island. At the end, Lauren Laverne says, which one would you save from the waves? If you couldn't save them all, which one would you save? And he said, it's the, the piece of music we used to play in the car as a family going down the A303 to Devon on a regular basis. I would take, I would save that because family is all. Family is everything. So clearly his fulfillment, his God is the family. Again, I can understand that so clearly. We can, we, these are good things, but they mustn't become God things. Good things, but they mustn't become God things. And then identity. It could be what you've accomplished. You are what you do in many people's eyes. And surprise, surprise, the best example I have of this is the late Tim Keller. He often said, and this is incredibly honest, he said that um, 
when he was preaching, he often, when he was younger, he hated people criticizing his sermons, his teaching, because it was him. It was his source of identity. He became so tied up in that. If you, know, if you criticized what he said, you were attacking his identity. And he realized how that had become a small god and that his identity lay elsewhere. I, as a teacher, I can so identify with that because I wanted my lessons to be the best, my students to want to come to my lessons and enjoy them, learn lots. And it's so easy for these things to become your gods. Good things can become God things. Hesse, would you like to do the second reading? We continue from verse 22. The contest. Then Elijah said to them, Am I the only one of the Lord's prophets left? Sorry, I am the only one of the Lord's prophets left, but Baal has 450 prophets. Get two bulls for us. Let Baal's prophets choose one for themselves and let them cut it into pieces and put it on the wood, but not set fire to it. I will prepare the other bull and put it on wood, but not set fire to it. Then you call on the name of your God and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answers by fire, he is God. Then all the people said, what you say is good. Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one of the bulls and prepare it first, since there are many of you. Call on the name of your God, but do not light the fire. So they took the bull given to them and prepared it. Then they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. Baal, answer us, they shouted. But there was no response. No one answered. And they danced around the altar they'd made. At noon, Elijah began to taunt them. Shout louder, he said. Surely he is a god. Perhaps he's deep in thought, or busy, or travelling. Maybe he's sleeping and must be awakened. So they shouted louder and slashed themselves with sword and spears, as was their custom, until the blood flowed. Midday passed, and they continued their frantic prophesying until the time for the evening sacrifice. There was no response. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, Come here to me. They came to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. Elijah took twelve stones, one for each of the tribes descended from Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Your name shall be Israel. With the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord, and he dug a trench around it large enough to hold two seers of seed. He arranged the wood, cut the bull in pieces, and laid it on the wood. Then he said to them, Fill four large jars with water and pour it on the offering and on the wood. Do it again, he said, and they did it again. Do it a third time, he ordered, and they did it a third time. The water ran down around the altar and even filled the trench. At the time of sacrifice, the prophet Elijah stepped forward and prayed. 
Lord God of Abraham, Isaac and Israel, let it be known today that you are God in Israel and that I am your servant and have done all these things at your command. Answer me, Lord, answer me, so these people will know that you, Lord, are God and that you are turning their hearts back again. Then the fire of the Lord fell and burned up the sacrifice, the wood, the stones and the soil and also licked up the water in the trench. When the people saw this, they fell prostrate and cried, The Lord, he is God! The Lord, he is God! Then Elijah commanded them, Seize the prophets of Baal! Don't let anyone get away! They seized them, and Elijah had them brought down to the Kishon Valley and slaughtered them there. And Elijah said to Ahab, Go, eat and drink, for there is the sound of heavy rain. So Ahab went off to eat and drink. But Elijah climbed to the top of Carmel, bent down to the ground, and put his face between his knees. Go and look towards the sea, he told his servant. And he went up and looked. There's nothing there, he said. Seven times Elijah said, go back. The seventh time the servant reported, a cloud as small as a man's hand is rising from the sea. So Elijah said, Go and tell Ahab, Hitch up your chariot and go down before the rain stops you. Meanwhile, the sky grew black with clouds, the wind rose, a heavy rain started falling, and Ahab rode off to Jezreel. The power of the Lord came on Elijah, and tucking his cloak into his belt, he ran ahead of Ahab all the way to Jezreel. This is the word of the Lord. Right, so are we limping along? Are we saying we follow God yet follow other things as our sources of um, identity, fulfillment and security? So we turn to the last, the more well-known part of this passage and start to look at uh, this question, how should we dance? Now you have to excuse me again, I'm going to share my, uh, my weekend viewing with you. I'm quite like American football. And as I was preparing the, the sermon, I couldn't help thinking about American football, not because it was on or I wanted to watch it and not prepare the sermon, but there's so much in One Kings that sort of reminds me of American football, and I'm just going to share it briefly with you. In American football, the, the professional teams' stadiums are often thousands of miles apart, and it is therefore unlikely that when you play away from home, you're going to get many supporters coming over to watch the match. Also, these stadiums are designed like sort of massive amplifiers. The aim is for the home crowd to make, be able to make so much noise they can intimidate the opposition. And also these, these teams, they try and choreograph their, their plays, as they call them, in great detail. And they need to communicate with each other. And if the opposition are shouting and screaming, you can't communicate very clearly with each other. And they also have cheerleaders. Now, Elijah has chosen Mount Carmel. This is like choosing an away match. 
Mark, Mark Carmel is associated with Baal and Baal worship. It's an away fixture. And he turns up, he's like the only supporter there from the, from the opposition. There are all these other people there, all these um, prophets of Baal, all these cheerleaders are there. They're, they're in large numbers, and there's just Elijah who turns up. Now, very quickly, there are two things that puzzled me when I looked at this. Surely it should be a, not a fire contest they're doing, but a rain contest, because rain is the thing that's being withheld. Why not turn it into a rain contest? Why fire? Well, the commentators very carefully and very, I think, correctly say, if it had been a rain contest, the rain could have come and the province of Baal said, well, actually, it's Baal's doing, not yours. Baal was a bit delayed, but he came on with the rain. So it would lead to an unclear outcome as to who is the real God. By doing a fire contest, Elijah is going to show publicly and clearly, like a Super Bowl match, who the real God is and who the false God is. Rain, sending rain at this point will not make it clear, totally clear, but sending fire will. And the other thing that puzzled me was Elijah seems to have forgotten about the hundred cave-dwelling prophets. He says, I'm the only prophet. But didn't Obadiah tell you there were a hundred prophets that he saved? And... Um, what about them? Well, I think Elijah is correct. He is the only active prophet, the only one speaking the words of the Lord out loud at this point. So he's strictly correct. He is the only prophet. But I also think there's a bit of a Gideon moment here. Would having the other 100 prophets validate the, the message of Elijah anymore? Does, does Elijah need 100 prophets cheerleading behind him? Is he not enough? It's a bit like Gideon was told to whittle down the numbers in his attack force until they were almost so small, it was clear it wasn't them doing the work, it was the Lord doing the work. If we have too many people here, will people think God needed 100 prophets and not one to speak his word and to show this amazing miracle which is going to glorify him? So I think there's also what I call a Gideon moment. Only Elijah was needed so the Lord could be glorified and seen to be glorified more clearly. So, are we dancing like the prophets of Baal? They actually not only have home advantage, they get to kick off and they spend all morning shouting. I also like doing that to students a bit louder on Monday mornings. It's not shouting at them, but shouting the word shout to wake them up. They're trying to wake their God up, they shout and they dance. And their dancing isn't that impressive because, let's do a quick check, the ESV says they were limping along. I think your version will say they were dancing. They're limping along, they're not very impressive, and they dance harder, and Elijah taunts them in verse 27. That you've, he's, he knows they've made a god in a human image, and like a human, they could be on holiday, they could be asleep, they could be in the bathroom. And he says, maybe your god's not able to hear you. Shout louder. And they shout louder, and they start to self-harm. I find that quite striking. Self-harm is involved here. To try and get their god to listen to them, they harm themselves. But nothing happens, unsurprisingly, because he is not a real god. He's not living. So we shouldn't dance like they do. Should we dance like Elijah? It's not much of a dance, is it? He just gets straight 
on with rebuilding the altar. He doesn't dance, he doesn't shout, he doesn't self-harm, but he's serious. He gets on with what he needs to do. He shows us that Mount Carmel wasn't just associated with Baal, it's also associated with the Lord, and he rebuilds the, the altar, and he then does something quite interesting. He prepares a sacrifice, and he gets it covered in water. Now, I had a warden moment at this point. Wardens do what, they try and do what's sensible and what's safe, don't they? Or don't you? Yeah. Is it sensible to be wasting water? Isn't there a hosepipe ban, a sprinkler ban? Um, and also, if you set fire to things in this dry atmosphere, aren't we going to have a massive um, conflagration? Isn't the mountain going to catch fire? Isn't there going to be all sorts of problems? But that's not why he does the water pouring. He's simply going to defy the laws of physics. Okay? Even clearer sign of God's action, wet wood shouldn't burn. So we have a single prophet who gives a simple prayer. Fire comes down from heaven. It consumes it all. The people of Israel confess the Lord's name. They obey the first commandment. They say the Lord is God, which incidentally is also the name of Elijah. The Lord, or Yahweh, is God. And the rain comes. So, ask the same question that uh, was asked earlier. This seems a long way from us in the 21st century. How can we apply this? Can we detach ourselves from this as well? As Christians, we've already hopefully realized that we can turn good things into God things, and that's a mistake. If we do that, we'll find that the things we've turned, the good things into God things, will demand so much of us and our energy, and we'll do strenuous dancing to achieve them, but we'll never feel satisfied. And they may even push us to harm. Well, we should seek to follow the Lord alone, and even then, though, we have to be careful. There are dangers in turning our activities that should honour the Lord into activities that operate like the Baal prophets and try and induce, entice, manipulate God to answer our prayers. The the prophets of Baal thought by shouting, by dancing, by trying harder and harder and harder, we we could persuade Baal to act. And sometimes there's a problem with us as Christians. We can sometimes think, well, the harder we pray, the longer we pray, the more we do this and that, we'll persuade God, we'll induce God to answer our prayers. And we're told very, very clearly by Jesus in the New Testament, he warns against prayer that becomes the prayer of a hypocrite, great public display. He also warns us about praying like pagans, babbling and using endless words. We are to be like Elijah. Our prayers are to be simple. It's who we're praying to that's important, not what we're doing. It is who we pray to. I'd like to close with a very um, final thought or observation. Verse 36 mentions the, the sacrifice, the evening sacrifice. And this passage, although it's rooted in ancient times points us forward. It points us that when I think of the sacrifices, I think of the cross. And when I think of the prophets of Baal, I think of them scarring themselves to be accepted by their God. And I think instead as Christians, it is on the cross that we were made acceptable to 
but to God. And it's by Jesus' scars that we, to quote the prophet Isaiah, we are healed. So not only does it point to that time, not only does it apply to us, it also points us, there's a pointer towards Jesus and the cross in this passage from 1 Kings. So what happens to Elijah next? Find out next week. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for the book of Kings, that book that has so much to teach us about how we should, how we should be dancing with you. We should be focused on you and no one else. We should seek you and seek you for our security, our fulfillment, and our identity. And all the good things around us should be good things and not God things. Protect our hearts from forging these things into idols that take us away from you. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.